2: Here are your
3: hosts, Headmaster Rebecca Hagstrom and co-host Mark Durkin. Well, good evening, and thank you for joining us here on Education Nation. I'm your Headmaster and host, Rebecca Hagstrom, and it's a privilege to join you this Saturday evening here on AM 1280 The Patriot. Today on Education Nation, we want to discuss the negative effects progressivism has had across America nationally as well as locally, from education to the economy and to health care and what have you.
1: And joining us in the studio once again to help us understand the effects of progressive policies is former State Senator David Hahn. Senator Hahn spent 14 years in the Minnesota Senate, and his special legislative concerns included but weren't limited to education and education reform. Senator Hahn, it's good to have you again on Education Nation. Well, thank Thanks for having me. I'm uh, feeling like I'm uh, getting to be a regular. Yes, yes, you sure are. Absolutely. I glad <laughs> you having me back.
3: You have so much to offer that we, we, can't, we can't tap you often enough.
1: <laughs> yeah, research can only go so far, but to have the uh, input uh, from a former state senator is wonderful. Yes, it is. Well, let's first take a look at education. Okay, we're going to start with the Founders' Vision. And you had briefly mentioned Article Three of the Northwest Ordinance of 1787. Yes. Would you again please share with our audience what Article 3 says, why it was thought to work for our nation, and what education looked like in this country until the rise? of progressivism.
2: Sure. And that's an important question. The, the Northwest Ordinance was a law that was passed in 1787, actually before the Constitution was written. So the same people that adopted the Constitution adopted the Northwest Ordinance. And it was a law that governed the territories at that time, the state of the country. And it sort of prospectively saying, here's what we think, uh, here are some rules to govern these territories as they become states. This has never been happened before in human history, so they're trying to lay out some rules. And it's a very short document really compared to the kind of laws we see today. Hmm. But there is one uh, You and, mean
3: the twenty thousand page? Yeah the twenty thousand page eight uh feet tall, law. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, there's a
2: problem there. But so so they they uh one of the in th- The beginning of Article Three. There's actually only one sentence that has to do with education, and uh, uh, it's very clear. It's very and and it was the first education law, if you will. It's never been repealed. It's never been uh, you know uh, removed. No one's ever passed a law to say, hey, get rid of that. Hmm. But what it says very clearly, and it's it's not long. It just says religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind. Schools and the means of education shall forever be encouraged. That's it. That's the whole thing. That's a direct quote. Mm -hmm. And so what they're saying is that you need to have three things, necessary things. You know, when you say something's necessary, that's very strong. You need to have religion, morality, and knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, for good government and for happiness And then they say the, r- the way you get those things is through schools mm-hmm. And what the founders believed is that you had to have people who were virtuous In order to have this sort of self-governing vision that they mm-hmm. had of, of our country That you had to have people who understood what human nature was Understood what good was They had to be people who were, who were being taught virtue uh, And taught to avoid uh, bad behavior, vice and that's what schools are for mm-hmm. in conjunction with what families do for their kids and that and that was their vision and so they laid this out with the hope that this would happen and it wasn't a federal project there was no federal money they you know people say well they didn't appreciate education or they forgot about it no they were very concerned about education but they believed it was the province not of the federal government but of local governments. And so they actually, after this law was written, they passed the Land Grant Act, which gave uh, parts of the federal uh, property to local uh, uh, states and local governments to use as an asset base to do schools. And they turned it over to people and said, you do with it what you will as long as this purpose is fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And today, of course, uh, as I said, this law has not been repealed. It's even worse than that. It's just been completely forgotten. Mm -hmm. People don't even know it exists. And I would just challenge... uh, our country, our our political people, our our educators, to say, why don't we base our education system today on this principle, right, yes. right. rather than on the one that we have? Right.
3: right, it is, it is, it has come so far away from that original founding principle, and I think it's interesting that you know when we consider that the progressive era began around the early 1900s, that's only not even 150 years after the founding of the country mm-hmm. and so i find that really sad and and when did the northwest ordinance come through when when 1787
1: the same same so, year as yeah. the constitution so
3: yeah so like 120 years later only it, it was already being lost and forgotten, and actually not just lost and forgotten, but purposefully.
2: Well, I think at the time the progressives hundred years ago, they they were aware of the of the uh, Northwest Ordinance. They were educated people, yeah, and mm-hmm. they were they were rejecting it. People like yes. uh, John Dewey and certainly, uh, well, they they were explicitly saying, "Well, they just got it wrong. Mm-hmm. They just got
1: it wrong." Mm-hmm. So what we're hearing today, there's an ignoring of it going on today. As we heard last week, Woodrow Wilson was calling for the ignoring of the preface of the Declaration of Independence. So as they were ignoring this principle of the Northwest Ordinance, German historicism was what was used in the rise of progressivism in education. If you could explain what German historicism is, how did it influence Americans seeking higher education?
2: Well, it's a philosophy that really, I think, uh, Hegel was maybe the foremost Mm -hmm. proponent, but there are others, and, and it grew out of the late... 1800s uh, in, in Germany, and it was this belief that history sort of had a was a force of its own. Uh, a lot of the things that you read in Marxism are based on this uh, idea that history kind of happens and that we as human beings are just sort of bystanders and so the, 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 the historicists believe that that there were no permanent things there were things that, that were true at a given time, at a given place, was all contingent on, on what was going on but they believe that this historical force sort of took care of itself mm-hmm. and that as human beings our job was to get in touch with that and to get in line with it and not to fight against it but to sort of anticipate and work with it and to and to and to move forward believing all along that this was the way to, to as we talked about last
1: week to find a way to perfect uh, perfect human society. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, what did the progressives really get out of it? What did they learn from the Germans? It's almost like they were saying, hey, look at Europe, everybody. Here in America, we're kind of stuck. You know, they're doing it right over there. I mean, were there things specifically that they were uh, critiquing as they were uh, looking at this? Well, I think that
2: they, the fundamental things, they, they did not believe that there was a, uh, a natural uh, human nature that was unchangeable. And so that, of course, means that there are no uh, inherent natural rights, individual rights that are permanent. You know, this was one of the great things that was a genius for the founders. They said, look, everybody is, we're, we're created equal, meaning that in our essential human nature, as Aristotle would say, we are the same. We, are, we have the same qualities. And some of those qualities are these rights rights to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, property. And those things cannot be taken away justly by any, any government, any constitution, any legislature. And so they were, and, and governments are, are there to protect those rights. Yeah. And that was the basis of society in the founders' view that people had these natural possessions, their rights and that they were going to be protected by government. And the the progressives come along and they say, well, wait a minute, that's just not true. All these rights come from the society. The society grants rights, and the way we know what the society wants to give people is we pass laws and we have legislatures and we have a, dem- a democracy moving to, to give expression to the will of the people and so what's the right today hey, maybe tomorrow mm-hmm. won't be right. and so there's a great oh, and we're seeing them
3: we're we seeing are, that we are absolutely seeing, absolutely that. seeing it and today. and even the notion that students aren't even being taught that we live in a democratic republic they instead think that we are living in a democracy
2: right well and you hear this so, all the time mm-hmm. P- and and I think it's important that that we we recognize that uh, it's not a democracy that yeah. we created it was a public. It was a a republic that that was founded on the idea of consent and their democratic elements as a way of obtaining consent, Mm -hmm. but it's not a democracy.
1: And if any of our listeners want to uh, reaffirm that, they can look at Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution. (laughs) That's right.
3: (laughs) If they've ever been given the Constitution, at (laughs) school, Right. That's true. Sadly. Uh, So this notion of promoting German historicism throughout the nation's education structure actually was recognized as early as 1876 with the founding of John. Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland. And the school was founded for the purpose of bringing German historical education. Prominent graduates include Woodrow Wilson, the future president, as we heard last week. And he would call for the removal of the preface or the preamble of the Declaration of Independence and the removal of the government's separation of powers. And another prominent graduate was John Dewey. You mentioned him just a little bit ago, um, Senator Hahn. He was a philosopher and a major player in education reform, and we'll soon discuss what motivated him in education reform as well. And then we have Frank Johnson Goodnow. He was a prominent American educator as well and progressive intellectual became the president of John Hopkins University in 1914. He wrote an essay called The American Conception of Liberty, Mm -hmm. and he called for politicians to get on board by looking at what was going on in Europe. Mm -hmm. So kind of an interesting, and you mentioned that a little bit briefly there, Mark, as well. So when we think about this German historicism, how do the proponents of school choice, Senator Han? Who want to stay away from that German historical thinking, keep the ball rolling to bring the necessary changes to education in the political sphere?
2: Well, I think that's a good question. And, and part of it is uh, there has to be a restoration of uh, 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 or answer the question, who's in charge of education? And it is not a project of the federal government. It is not a project. It is not a project. that is centralized and and it really needs to be restored to and ask the fundamental question what is the purpose and i would argue that you go back and read the the uh, statement in the in the Northwest Ordinance and say, this is the purpose of education, and then how do we get to that purpose? How do we inculcate these virtues that we think are needed in young people in order to be self-governing citizens under the model of uh, uh, the ideas of the Declaration and the model of the Constitution? How do we do that? It's not just going to happen. You have to prepare people to, to, to assume those responsibilities. So I think for school choice, the, the effort has been, in my opinion, to allow people to, to uh, choose schools that fit there. Uh, vision of education and to move away from this this sort of uh, bureaucratic model that we have currently that says, well, we've got all these experts, these education experts in Washington who kind of lay things out and then they pass it on to the education experts at the state and they pass it on to the education experts at the school district and then they just, you know, everybody is compelled by law to attend these schools and they just, and, it, and it's it's not, it, it's, a, it's a centralized vision of education that really, instead of having the, the purpose be uh, uh, let's let's find out what is good and true and beautiful. It's more about how do we get people to acquire those skills that they need to gain wealth and power mm-hmm. in this nation.
3: It's more and of so a the, factory it, model.
2: It's it's mm-hmm. a complete uh, turning on the head of mm-hmm. of a purpose of education. It is not about discovering right and wrong and true and good. It's all about. Uh, what are the skills that'll help me become rich and famous and powerful?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and we have to
2: change that. I think I think yes. the school choice movement is the is the means by which those things can happen. I don't think it guarantees it. I mean, a lot of every every school choice, every school choice family is going to be choosing schools for their family, but it does open the door to permit more of that kind of education to mm-hmm. occur. And as it does occur, I think uh, more and more people will be attracted to it as we begin to experience some of the failures that we're seeing today and mm-hmm. the right. way our government works.
3: Well, and you talk about the true, the beautiful, and the good, and that is, you know, just right out of the classical education playbook. And, and, and really that is how people were educated for, you know, centuries dating all the way back to Greco-Roman times. And so I think what, what that Northwest Ordinance would say, was saying really reflected the type of education that that a classical education, which was the norm at the time, was producing.
2: Well, they they they'd said even that if you read that that uh, Northwest Ordinance, they they say you cannot have good government, meaning the kind of government that they've envisioned. Mm-hmm. You cannot have that unless you have people. Who are educated in this way, mm-hmm. who understand right from wrong, who understand what is good and what is evil, who who understand the importance of developing these virtues that allow us to be self-governing. They say, if you don't do that, then you're not going to be able to have it. So I think as progressives look at this, they say, well, yeah, well, that's great. We don't want to have that. So mm-hmm. let's get away from choice and let's force everybody into these these uh, schools that we've created that don't teach any of that stuff, because if they learn all that, they might not buy into the progressive right vision. They,
3: might, they might not think like they want that to think. (laughs) And they might actually think. (laughs) That was quite a a dig, but (laughs) sadly, that is what we're seeing. We have college professors all over the nation saying the students are coming in. They do not know how to think deeply. Well, who was it subjects? that we were talking
1: about at the turn of the 20th century who said that? It was Rockefeller Yeah. who said, I'm looking Don't for... Don't want them to. Right. We're looking for a field of, of, of workers, not mm-hmm. thinkers, essentially. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about John Dewey just real quick before we take a break. You know, he was a big-time critic of the Declaration of Independence. We mentioned he was uh, a major reformer in education. In his 1935 essay, Liberalism and Social Action, he had stated, quote, the permanence of natural rights is a relic... Of a bygone era. The founders' interpretations of liberty were historically conditioned and were relevant only to their own time. They put forward their ideas as immutable truths, good at all times and places, and they had no idea of historic relativity, either in general or in its application to themselves. Very much going along with what we're hearing from so many other people, it's that same train of thought. Well, it is time for a short break here on Education Nation when we return. David Hand will share with us how progressivism has affected health care and the economy. Stay tuned.
3: Welcome back to Education Nation. I am your host, Rebecca Hagstrom, along with co-host Mark Durkin and former Minnesota State Senator David Hahn. And today we are discussing the negative effects of progressivism across America. We spent our first segment talking about education in America. Let's turn our attention to a hotly discussed topic, health (laughs) care, which has been a hotly discussed topic for quite some time now, ever since the passage of obama care um but with the passage of former President Obama's signature Affordable Care Act late Scotus Justice Anton Scania, or Scalia excuse me uh argued before this the court's landmark decision the federal government is not supposed to be a government that has all powers it's supposed to be a government of limited powers if the government can do this What else can it not do? Since then, Obamacare has been repealed and replaced, well, not fully, Mm -hmm. by the U.S. House, but isn't the potential replacement of one form of government-run health care with another just as progressive and overhaul and intrusive?
2: Well, yes, the short answer would be yes, you're right. uh, In the the first place, uh, this idea that, that, uh, and you hear many progressives, this is what Democrats call themselves today, progressives, talk about, well, health care is a right, health care is a right. And it isn't a right. Uh, you know, to, to to say it's a right is really to say that that one person has the natural right to take something from someone else. Right. And and that is not an, there are no natural rights that give one person the ability or the right, if you will, to take something by force from another person. Now that doesn't mean that that uh, those things can't be done. They can be done, and they are done. But they are not rights. But progressives talk about health care as a right, and so therefore, because it's a right, then they say, well, now the federal government should do it. But if you read the Constitution, if you actually read it, and it's pretty clear when you read it, it's not you know it's not you don't need to be a you know college professor or a genius to figure it out you know but but just read it and it says here are the powers of the federal government nowhere. Where does it say it is a part of the federal government to do anything with health care and to, and to regulate it and to require and do all the things that the Obamacare law did. And I I, I did read the opinions of the Supreme Court on this, and, and I, I to be honest with you, I'm not entirely in agreement with the, our, our justices mm-hmm. on how they decided that I case.
3: wasn't. I was very surprised and very disappointed.
2: Well, and I know it's surprising, but there were pol- politics involved. I mean, even at the Supreme Court clearly, level, there are politics clearly. involved with these things, unfortunately. But but the, the, the challenge really, I think, for non-progressives, for people who believe in and the vision of the founders. We need to restore things like health care to the province of states and individuals. States have had traditionally the power to regulate the insurance markets, which is fine. That's nothing wrong with that, nothing unconstitutional. But the real objective should be to create a marketplace to allow people to make choices. And and rather than have a, a federal bureaucracy t- dictating and saying, here are your choices, you have three, gold, bronze, and silver, <laughs> choose one, uh, that doesn't work. Uh, and so when you have something like an economy, I think what they say, one-seventh of the economy is tied up in healthcare mm-hmm. You cannot pass a law that is going to regulate that and do it successfully. I saw a... Uh, a graphic illustration of the Obamacare, Affordable Care Act, so-called. It was a stack of papers that was about eight feet tall. Yeah.
3: That's and really I don't sad. believe anybody's ever read it. Probably not. No. In how its entirety. I? I mean, the people who wrote
2: it, they, mm-hmm. they read the parts they were working on. But I don't think anybody sat down there. let's read the Affordable Care right. Act. No. Which just gives you an idea of when you have a law that is that complicated and has been written by lobbyists and bureaucrats and, quote, experts mm-hmm. and, and trying to put in things to gain votes and all this stuff, you know you got a problem. Right. Uh, laws have to be clear and understandable by the people who are affected by them. And if you can't understand a law without hiring a team of attorneys to read it for you, then mm-hmm. it's it, it really raises a lot of questions about what is this vision of law that we're being governed under where we can't even read the laws.
3: Well, and we remember Nancy Pelosi's yep, famous line. Say, <laughs> yes. We have to pass it before. We know well, what's in it. And then they pass it at midnight on Christmas Eve well, under it, a rule. Well, right? it really what's goes the to special the... special rule.
2: It, yeah, the, yes. the, uh, uh, what do they call it? The... Uh, uh budget it was a budget uh uh, uh way to make a yes. you know, what they call it not consensus but they
3: Co- something like that yeah. Oh I'm sorry but I don't remember the name of that rule either. but they they, they really went out of their way to pass this yes. completely along party lines at midnight on Christmas Eve and uh when nobody's looking for nobody to to <laughs> and I think it had only been been put out like the day before, a 20,000-page document. Well, it's a,
2: it's a, it represents a huge abuse of power and a triumph, of, if yes. you will, of progressivism in this vision that we can do these things and give people what they want and to, and to in effect, run people's lives. But mm-hmm. it, is, it is the very opposite of this idea that we should be self-governing. Uh, individuals should be empowered with and have the ability to make choices about their health care, about mm-hmm. their insurance. And it's the job, I think, of legislation, and it should be state legislation, not federal legislation, is to create the conditions to allow that market Mm -hmm. to operate fairly. I I would often make analogies with people as we had this debate here in Minnesota about, you know, you've got uh, in this country and in this state, you've got this huge, huge, complicated food, manufacture, production, distribution system, uh, all manner, variety of products, prices, uh, just unbelievable, unbelievable. And there's no... Exchange governing all this, how this works. People go to grocery stores and convenience stores and they go to open air markets and they buy whatever they want and they do all this. And people who have economic needs and they can't, they they get vouchers, you know, Mm -hmm. to take and and use those things to buy food. And it works just fine. We have the safest, uh, the most, uh, the richest uh, uh, food distribution in human history. Mm -hmm. And it's not run by a federal exchange or a state exchange. Right. Right. And so the model for a healthcare should be more like that. Mm-hmm. Let there be rules to make sure there is not bad behavior and fraud, and then encourage the development of lots and lots of choices for people. I mean, why do we have uh, only three kinds of insurance? I mean, why, why can't right. you choose to have insurance that doesn't require mm-hmm. hair replacement therapy?
3: Right. Uh, you know,
2: we, we've got <laughs> yes. mandates put on insurance that mm-hmm. that dictate. Uh, what it has to be covered, which, of course, translates into costs. Higher, higher cost.
3: Right. Higher cost so the vision
2: here, and I think Republicans are in many cases as guilty as Democrats with this, is not to take something that is a an enactment of a progressive vision for how government should be done and then replace it with what Republicans may think is a little better mm-hmm. uh, way to do that. What we really should be stri- striving for is a return to the marketplace, which really is – freedom, allowing people to be free. We should not be saying, here's the new plan. We should be saying, here's the path to freedom and choices that individuals need to make.
3: And so interestingly, um, people unfortunately see that freedom almost, they don't value it. They want to be taken care of. And then when Republicans or, you know, maybe there's some Democrats too, I don't think many, would try to go back to a more free market principled uh, form of healthcare, they get lambasted as as lacking compassion and not caring about people, and you know throwing grandma off off the off the cliff. Well, you know, you remember that famous
2: well, um, that's what the yeah, media
3: they, ad, and and so even if you really believe as i do that the free market really is a better solution for healthcare i used to work in healthcare and i i worked with people who used to work in socialized systems and they said it was a disaster people waiting lists and yes. people not getting the tests they need and and so i firmly believe in free market when it comes to healthcare but how do we avoid that label how do you get that point across to people without because of the era we live in, and as I said last week, we talked about the assimilation, people just kind of, they take on these ideas as though they're factual when really
2: they're not. Well, and there has to be a continual uh, push against this and a fight back. And, and a lot of people on the left, the progressives, they all say, well, you know, since healthcare is a right, which it isn't, but they say it's right, and because it's a right, people should have it for free. Mm-hmm. And whenever they say that to me, I always say, well, are you saying then that doctors and nurses and technicians should not be paid? They should just donate their time Mm -hmm, and provide health care. And they say, well, no, no, and they need to be well paid. So what you're really saying is that people should have access to health care that somebody else pays for. And it's really just a question of figuring out who that somebody else is Mm -hmm. going to be. Mm -hmm. Well, this is a very pernicious idea. And not only uh, is it it a bad idea uh, sort of intellectually and and philosophically, but it doesn't work. It has never worked, and it Mm -hmm. cannot work. And when people say, "Well, we can't have this governed by a free market," I think our response has to be, "Well, free markets always work. They mm-hmm. always work. That doesn't mean unregulated. You know, free markets mm-hmm. ca- can and ought to be regulated to make sure that there's not fraud and bad behavior. But it is the only way when you have something that's very complicated to allow for the kinds of uh, results that people want. Not especially in healthcare. We are all different. We all have unique needs. We all live our lives differently. We do things." You have to give people the ability to make choices that are right for them. And there is no yes. plan that you can devise that has the ability to to do that for every individual. Right. right. And that, that's the, that's the fallacy. It's a utopian vision that somehow yes. we can create this model that's going to work for everybody. Mm-hmm. Well. Okay. It would be kind of like saying, well, we're going to create this one menu of food, and we're going to make the entire country right. eat, eat the it. same menu mm-hmm. every day. And just think how efficient that would right. be.
3: <laughs> it would you be know, so efficient. Tuesday
2: would be Brussels sprouts so day, boring. and, and uh, <laughs> Wednesday would be pork, you know, just, right. it would be, it's just ludicrous mm-hmm. to think this. But this is what, again, progressives do not trust the ability of human beings to make those decisions, and they don't trust the ability of people to govern themselves.
1: Right, right. We have about a minute here, but we're going to just talk about this real quick, the nation's economy. You know, Mm in 1819, you know, SCOTUS had a case of McCullough versus Maryland, uh, basically where the court had to decide whether Congress had the power to create a national bank. Well, to make a long story short, uh, the biggest bank advocate at the time was Alexander Hamilton. And Jefferson and Madison recognized that there was nothing among the numerated powers granted to the federal government in the Constitution that specifically authorized Congress to create such a bank. But that didn't stop the Chief Justice at the time, uh, Marshall. Uh, from siding with Hamilton, and that really swept the enumerated power principle away with his signature of the pen. So, Since then, the Federal Reserve Act was passed in 1913, and we all have 12 Federal Reserve banks in the Federal Reserve System as part of the nation's largest central banking system. Real quickly, how has that violation of the powers, the expansion of a national banking system, negatively affected the nation's economy?
2: Well, I think, uh, again, as in many of these things, uh, the, the real harm, in my view, is that you you uh, remove people from the ability to make decisions that affect their lives, whether it's in the economy or in health or in education. Uh, our, our nation was, was envisioned to be self-governing, mm-hmm. meaning that yes. all of us should have the power to make decisions that affect our lives and that the federal power has to be limited and specific.
3: Okay. Yeah, very good. Well, this is a topic that we could spend weeks upon, um, but I do hope that our listeners have come away from these last two shows a little bit more wise to the principles of progressivism and how it has really infiltrated our thinking here in the culture today. So we invite our listeners to listen to this podcast or any other of our previous podcasts at ednationmn.org. That's ednationmn.org. And you can check us out on Facebook at Education Nation Radio or Twitter at EdNationMN. Thanks for joining us. See you next week.